Brian, are you, have, have you kind of gradually inched away from your mic again? Or are you still are you still within? Oh gosh, I'm sorry. I when I ramble, I should have pointed that out. When I ramble, I tend you lean. To, I usually <laughs> pace. I'm doing my best just to stay in my chair. So I'm going to wrap both my arms behind the mic now, so that way, if I pull back, I'll. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. Stra- I'm so- strap yourself to the I'm mic. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to be that guy. Okay, I'm going to go ahead. <laughs> I'm Brian Colon, creator of Rampage, and you are listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May, and this is a podcast project devised to allow Paul Drury, Hello. Tony Temple, Hello. and I, an opportunity to speak at length with notable figures from the proverbial golden age of video arcade gaming. Arriving at manufacturer Bally Midway in 1982 from a background in filmmaking and traditional animation, Brian Colin was responsible for the fluid character animation in the iconic Discs of Tron. Though initially employed as an artist and animator, He soon went on to have a more involved role in actual game design and is known for his long-standing partnership with programmer Jeff Nauman. From Cosmic Cruiser, the little-known Zwackery, through Arch Rivals and Pigskin, to the hugely successful Rampage, Brian's unorthodox design ethos and acute sense of humour was novel for the era. As you will hear, Colin's steadfast view was that video games should elicit joy and laughter in all who step up to the control panel or sit down at the PC keyboard, a simple philosophy that endures to this day. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough time to discuss another curling classic, the brilliant Xenophobe, but we did manage to squeeze in an anecdote about meeting The Rock on the set of a 2018 movie adaptation of Rampage, and it was interesting to hear Brian's take on modern arcade gaming. As always, thank you for listening, and if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or simply tell a friend. You can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Brian, you're well known for creating such games as Rampage and Xenophobe, but we just wondered, have you ever considered creating a game featuring a bikini-clad boomerang-throwing cavewoman, maybe riding a huge (laughs) watermelon-eating pterodactyl, and maybe you could kind of spit watermelon seeds at a giant, invisible killer bee? What do you think? You know, great minds must think alike. I, by an amazing coincidence... uh... We were asked to do a game to compete with uh, track and field where you were just slapping buttons. And uh, I kind of always wanted to push the hardware and we couldn't scale. But if I just did multiple uh, sprites of rocks and trees and things getting smaller, uh, we came up with this game that it was called, uh, it ended up being called Tui Louie. And Louie was a giant red pterodactyl who you would use the buttons, slapping the buttons uh, wildly as you ran along the ground eating watermelons and there did actually happen to be a bikini clad woman uh fur bikini 
and with a boomerang, <laughs> of course, riding on his back. And at the desired time, you would leap into the air and then glide hundreds of feet into the air and then glide around with this woman and try to make as much distance as you can. So you ran as fast as you can to jump as high as you could. And then the plan was that these giant bees would attack you and you could spit watermelon seeds at the bees. And the, <laughs> the uh, young woman on your back would throw her boomerang, which could take out several at once. All sounded really good. And uh, right a month before we were supposed to go on test, um, we saw that we were going to run out of art space. Right. And... Um, I just knew that with some clever, charming rhetoric to my bosses <laughs> that they would give us the bigger EPROMs. And they said, no, make it work. So the bees, as it happened, they were literally invisible <laughs> with just kind of a few sparkles to indicate there was something there. Uh, they didn't scale. They only showed up, surprise, right next to you. Brilliant. And, uh, and then it went out on test and it failed miserably for some reason. Yeah, you see, I think that's an absolutely wonderful idea and I'm absolutely gutted. Um, but I suppose I'm interested to know that is there a point when you realise that maybe a game idea is just gonna not going to fly or is it not until it actually gets out in the arcade? I Could you actually predict what the public were going to put their quarters into back then? I have been, I have been called a brilliant and modest game designer. <laughs> But um, honestly, I make games. My biggest inspiration for games is something I want to see. And the fact that I know they have to earn money and they have to be, make the operator happy and the player happy and do all that. That's all stuff I love to factor in. And that's part of game design. But I make yeah. games for my own amusement. And I've just been lucky or blessed or both that my big games have struck that nerve with other crazy people out there that want to do that same silly thing. One of the things that you can see a theme through your games is that you don't seem to be drawing on other video games. You seem to be drawing on wider influences, comics, movies, lots of comedy. Um, can you guess the movie for Patui Louie? Uh, what is that, 10,000 BC? It makes me think of Raquel Welsh. Is that right? It was uh, Heavy Metal. Remember the ad oh. campaign for Heavy Metal, the, the uh, female character riding on the back of a pterodactyl? The point is you you're drawing from a, a wider source. Is that is that important in your game designs to go beyond just other video games? When I hire people uh, over you know the last 27 years since we've had our own company, I want always tell them to make sure that they are living their lives outside of what we do for fun at work. Because I think everything has got to come from those outside experiences or you're just rehashing. When I go to a trade show, the only thing I look for when I go up and down the aisles, especially back in the arcade days, is something that's not too close to what I'm thinking about for doing next. Right. Because I never want to do something that's too close to anybody else. I figure I've got to, I mean, A, if I can play a straight by the numbers football game, why would I want to make one? Yeah. Some people, that's their inspiration. Hey, I want to make a better one. I want to play something where, okay, that's fine, but let's give them battle axes and swords because that's going to be funny to me. <laughs> so it's more about luck, I think. The game design stuff comes in, but my inspiration is more my life, you know, when I was between six and 12 years old, stomping around in the sandbox and smashing your army men and occasionally maybe even lighting a firecracker to one, you know. Film seems to influence a lot of your games as well. There's a cinematic quality to them. I understand that film was actually your first passion. Tell us about your filmmaking days. I, in uh, high school, 
Um, well, actually, in junior high school, I used to do a haunted um, a haunted house every year around Halloween, and the crowds got so big over the years, we had to start doing stuff to keep the neighborhood kids happy while they were waiting to tour, take the tour. <laughs> and I figured out one day that, hey, maybe I'll make a film. And then that became my new passion. So through the rest of high school, and then I went to school for filmmaking. Um, and in high school, I made a prolific amount of wonderful little short Super 8 films. In college, when it got more expensive, and college students weren't as cooperative as friends you could coerce in high school, I kind of switched over to animation. But my background is film. The fact particularly that you got interested in animation, did that then make a move into the games industry kind of logical? It would have if someone gave it some thought. Um, I'm a quick thinker, and I plan, you know, I'm... Uh, I can plan intricately what I want to do once I'm focused on something, but focus and me don't collide that often. So I didn't plan my career. I backed into it. My animated films in, in college won a lot of international awards and I threw them, I, you know, reels out everywhere. And I answered an ad at the Bally Midway company thinking that my animated film would show off my drawing, my pen and ink skills, and they would they called me in and I thought I was going in to interview for a pinball glass artist. Ah. I didn't even realize Bally was making video games at that time. They were they had done Ms. Pac-Man and they had done Tron. And I was shocked when they said, No, we want to hire you to do video games. Uh, so it actually did turn out well but at the time i was less than excited about going from you know creating cartoon art to pac-man really you hire animators for that <laughs> uh and i just knew that you know my childhood was over i had a real job and boy was i wrong Brian, you just made reference there to your um, interview with Bally. Could you could you talk a bit more about the interview process itself? What were you asked to do? How did you demonstrate your credentials? Um, it was it was very surprising to me. Uh, this was a corporate world, and prior to then, I'd been doing newspaper ads for local taverns and getting paid in beer and popcorn kind of thing. So this was a little different, and. I went in and they had seen my animated film. And uh, I believe it was more of a show me around the office and show me what I'm going to be working with and less of a who are you, what have you done before, what's your experience? Because back in those days, we're talking 1982, um, there were no video game schools. An animation, I majored in animation at my film school, but that was only two classes. I mean, you were they were literally still teaching us about Tex Avery and uh, Chuck Jones back in those days and what we had to do to do cell animation. So they didn't ask me so much about me as kind of similar to what we're doing now, talking to me about myself and then showing me what I'd be working with that was a whole different world to me. Uh, frightened me, intimidated me. I was pretty pretty um, reserved. Uh, they were very excited to have me. They were they were treating me wonderfully. And I think at the end of the interview, I said, uh, you know, I'm, I, I hope I haven't, I'm trying to maintain my enthusiasm here, but uh, you need to know, you know, I've got a successful ad agency and I, you know, I make, uh, you're, for me to come work for you, you're going to have to really pay me, you know, at least $300 a month. <laughs> and uh, George Gomez, the, uh, who is kind of the de facto head of the, uh, the new group that they were forming, their in-house development team says, yeah, I think we can do a little better than that. 
He was wonderful. It was noth- like nothing I'd ever experienced, and I don't imagine too many people have ever had that same kind of experience. They don't have that experience today. Today, you've got to show reels. You've got to show what you could do. You've got to show the history. Mm. I just backed into this industry and fell in love with it within weeks. Well, it sounds like they they were very motivated to create their own in-house development team. Um, Obviously, you know, midway up to that point had done very well from licensing Japanese titles like um, Space Invaders and Pac-Man. When you joined, did you get a sense for what their motivation was in terms of creating an in-house development team? I believe they had, uh, and again, I was not following video games at the time, but they'd had success with Tron, which was their first in-house development team game. Mm. They were about halfway through Satan's Hollow. And I was told later that I was specifically hired because the Tron character in the Tron game, you know, moved a little bit like John Cleese doing his funny walk with the one straight arm pointing in all the directions. And it was not, it was very limited animation. And having got my reel, my, my film, they felt I could bring more traditional animation to their group. Okay, I was only, when I got hired, there was only one other animator, uh, Sharon Perry. And uh, at, when I got hired, and they were still doing stuff on graph paper. I mean, the the tools we used in those days were designed by by hardware technicians, and you had to dial up on little painful thumb wheels each one of the zero through sixteen RGB values one at a time, and then you would move your mouse. Not uh, yeah, I guess it was mouse control, and then you'd press this little thumb button that would put a hole in your thumb after repeated use all day to lay down a single pixel and then repeat. So it was very crude, very painful. But the flip side for me was that unlike animation where I'm drawing for a while and then I'm filming and then I'm sending stuff away for months and months and not months, but weeks to get it back to find you made a mistake and you have Mm. to start all over again. I was doing stuff in the morning and seeing it in the game in the afternoon. And that immediacy really appealed to my impatient nature for, okay, I'm doing this. What can we do next? What can we do next? I mean, it was fun from the moment I got in there. It sounds like the way the the development of games was structured, that there was probably a bit of flex in your job description, i.e. whilst you were employed on paper as being an animator, presumably much of your input um, you know, came to assist with the whole game design process also? Yes, uh, and, in, and that's all in hindsight that I realized it because at the time it was me ask a question, someone answer, and... Uh, you know, why aren't we doing this? Well, nobody's done that. Hmm. So I go and sit down and draw some cute little characters. And three weeks later, they've got a programmer assigned to a game that no one was even going to look at. But I thought, well, I'll try this. And in those days, they were still figuring out how this worked. Uh, Our development offices were outside the main factory building. So we were left alone. And we were all, uh, especially by today's hindsight, we were all kids We were figuring stuff out on our own. All the programmers shared everything with every other programmer. I came up with a way to do this on the hardware. Can I borrow that? Uh, Animators worked together on everything and animators had it the best because we got to work on virtually every product, um, whether it was as lead animator or just I'm contributing this. And we would walk from space to space and go, hey, this is fun, but why don't we add this or have you thought about doing that? And it was all very open. The lines were, there were no, the only thing Bally told us as a group is that there were no designers. There were programmers, there were artists. 
artists. Mm -hmm. And I became a designer out of self-defense just because some programmers who you learn from mistakes, which is the best way you learn from anything, is that things that aren't planned out in advance means I'm doing the same thing 10 times from 10 different views. But if you spend a little time kicking some ideas around with people and saying, okay, well, yeah, you could do that. But if, what if we did that? And the fact that programmers and artists think very differently um, the sum is greater than the parts by the time you're done when you, everybody can communicate like that. And that's very different today. I mean, you've got all the middle management today and, and they force these kinds of structures on every project. But back in the day, we were just hanging out, talking, making each other laugh, surprising each other. You know, sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't, but you learn from your mistakes. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. Right. We were at the center of the video game world in the U.S. and we didn't know it. There was no sense of, of pressure other than we got to get this out on time or someone's going to get laid off downstairs. <laughs> um, it was a good way to learn to become a developer in every respect. You could pick the brains of many different people and you learned from many different people and, and what they were doing. So it sounds like it was very much a, a sort of flat structure almost. It was. It was. It was peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, unofficially, programmers, uh, one programmer worked on a project so ultimately, he was going to make the decisions on what would go in and what would go out. You could figure out how you wanted it to look and, and fly it past him. And if he liked it, you know, it's getting in there. If, um, but on a one by one level, different programmers have are different people. And then you have to learn this guy I can flatter, this guy I have to impress, this guy I have to just suggest it and make him laugh and it's in the game. So you learned how to deal with it was very much a team process. And because we were unorganized, we were just peer to peer, it became a perfect way to learn what later became the design process. What I feel is my design process is very much built around still to this day. You may come in as a programmer, you may come in as an artist, you may come in as you know a, a writer, but you're all going to deal with each other on a day-to-day -day basis on what you're working on. And I, I, I try not to force it. I try to let it happen naturally because that's the way, as long as people are having fun, if, if you can tell if a team had fun because the game is fun. You touched briefly there, Brian, on the pressures of keeping people in the factory in in a job. Um, how often did you get to visit the factory floor? Um, the the first year I was there, like I said, we were in a separate. We were about a block away from the uh, factory in a small office space. My office was originally the hall, uh, the hallway. Um, but after that first year, we were in the main factory, but by then 15, 20 of us were a core team and we were very much, we had an entire floor in the new factory building. The factory was right below us. So we would go downstairs. We would be checking stuff as a new game of ours is coming out. We would be standing at, at the end of the line, uh, you know, Hey, that someone's got to take that, uh, UV light out of there. Cause it's spoiling the uh, reflection of the you know, it's causing a reflection on the monitor and this is supposed to look like a black void, you know, and those kinds of things literally happened, you know, first day of production and, you know, somebody would have to rush upstairs and make a change. Uh, it was it was fun. And for me, it was all new and it was all exciting until the corporation got bigger and you got a lot more. Uh, and eventually it did, thankfully. Uh, but as the corporate mentality came in, those were the only first times you really heard no. Okay. 
Prior to that, you heard, yeah, let's give it a try. Brian, hi. Um, listening to you, listening to you reminisce about your about the teamwork. Um, I've I've just come off listening, uh, sorry, watching um, the behind the scenes of the the Mandalorian, and just sitting there watching John Favreau and um, Dave Filoni talk and shoot the breeze um, about you know the creative um, stuff on the show. It's, it's like listening to you talk about you know your your design team back then. It's really it's really good stuff. I guarantee you they had a bigger budget. <laughs> I guarantee you they did, yeah. Um, so, Brian, the first game you came to work on um, at Bally was Discs of Tron. Right, um, right. A wonderful game. I, I, I was told later they specifically hired me to make Tron's, you know, the character, Tron character's animation more realistic. And uh, the limitations were great. It really, I love a creative challenge and working on that game convinced me that I had made the right choice. It was so much fun to get the most you could out of the few sprites they, they gave you and the few colors they gave you. Well, there's a real fluidity to the animation. It reminded me of uh, Dennis Caswell's animation for Impossible Mission on the on the C64, which um, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, just so smooth and, like you say, um, a world away from the, um, you know, of a slightly stiff two-frame animation from the original Tron game. Did you so? Did you did you pour over the uh, over the film frames and were you tracing from a TV screen onto tracing paper or something like that? No, nothing like that. Um, okay. the, the the pixel the pixel art in that Bally Midway system uh, was double the resolution of the background, so we had that going for us in terms of what we could get out of it. Hmm. Um, everything was. Until a few years later, when somebody introduced cameras into the uh, the and actually developed in-house art tools that were great, everything was you know straight pushing these pixels around the screen till it looks just right. Art tools were actually the same monitors that the games went out on, so the mm-hmm. slight blur between the pixels was something you could you know we only got sixteen colors, but mm. if I put this color at the right register next to this other color where they blend almost gives you the feeling of a shadow and stuff like that. So it was, and I am a minutia guy. Uh, that's one of the reasons I'm a pen and ink artist is I like mm. the minutia and getting it just right. So everything for me was no, just drawing straight, not from photos, not from anything. Wow. So you weren't, you, you weren't rotoscope. You, it was, this wasn't a primitive form of rotoscoping. It was just you drawing straight to the straight to the screen absolutely i'm i'm one of these people that looks at that kind of thing with thinly veiled contempt well that's but that's... even if it comes out wonderful i sure. i i get annoyed that it came out wonderful no I, I would never do anything like that i like the process of animation the and classic animation techniques that i can use uh and so how did you how did you Speaking to that, then, how did you transfer those traditional animation skills? For example, if you're if you're doing in between, you know, for example, if you're how should I say creating your your rough flipbook and you're you're doing in between frames and you've got your keyframes, you obviously kind of having to limit those or distill those in some way in order to fit in with the the medium you're working with. Well, if this were a video podcast, you would see my grin was ear to ear through that throughout that entire question because okay. um, in those days we had 32, 
foreground sprites for the whole game or mm. 64 foreground sprites for the whole game. There were no in-betweens. No. A run, a run cycle is a run cycle. And if you could do it in four, great. If you had yep. to go to five or six frames and the tools that we were working with did let us advance and go back so I could draw the one frame and have it loaded next to the other and then play it. And then you would just play it and see, okay, no, I need to pull that knee up a little bit, or I need to flatten that foot. And you would draw it. You would just erase the pixels that you didn't like and mm. move them to where they were. There weren't any tools to rotate in those days. Those It was just I'm looking at it, animate while I'm doing it. Again, One of the that's one of the things that while I knew I was giving up my my cell animation uh, style mm. to go into this industry, that's the immediacy of being able to, hey, on this computer, I'm watching it animate while I'm creating it. And a lot of it then, too, is working with the programmer. I want to do this guy waving his arms about as he's falling off the disc in Discs of Tron. And guess what? I've only got two frames. So you talk to the programmer and you say, okay, I need you to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth four times before he drops off. And then that gives the player the warning that we're, we've intended to let, because before I did that, once he got to the edge, he'd just fall off after a random amount of time that was assigned by the programmer. So this is the warning. Sure. We have only got two frames to do it. And it's one of my favorite bits in Dis of Trot is because it looks very fluid, but it's just two frames just going back and forth at just the right speed. And that's where the programmer gets involved. So in so indeed Brian, you're speaking to the animation side of things still. You know, you're designing these things on on CRT screens. Right. And indeed that's how they're viewed. That doesn't necessarily translate to the modern day when you may well be playing these games on an emulator on an LCD screen. And all of a sudden, you know, your beautiful graphics, which you slaved over lovingly, just don't quite look right. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I hate that. I mean, uh, uh, that's why that's why I love the arcade collector community uh, mm. for preserving these old things. Um yeah, the, the once they're translated to first of all, you know, our pixels weren't square. Yes, exactly. Um, and so that immediately changes it. It does lose a lot. Uh, for me, it loses a lot. Some people are just happy to be able to see it in any form, which I appreciate them for enjoying it in that way. But it bothers me to see it on anything other than a crisp, brand new CRT, of which there are none. So, well, yeah, it's like kind of like going into an art gallery and, and wearing sunglasses as you as you walk around or something. Yeah, uh, probably a little highfalutin. That pretty fair analogy there. Um, so, Discs of Tron, of course, is well remembered for um, the amazing environmental cabinet um you know which you actually step into um and uh tony paul and i when we were at free play florida last year they they had one there and it's um it's the first time i've not the first time i played the game but it's the first time i've um i've stepped into a an environmental discs of tron and it was just man that was my favorite thing there i've got i've got to be honest i'm it's another one of the reasons i fell in love with the industry after kind of dreading getting into it i mm. fell in love with that cabinet and i gave the designer of that cabinet uh george gomez um mm. i gave him so much grief it's like who is going you're going to try and sell a sit down that you have to stand up in right <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah, the first time I saw it, it's like, oh, this is brilliant. Every game should have this level of attention to it. Yeah. And there were two versions, Brian. There was um, 
unless unless I'm getting myself mixed up, there was the full environmental discs of Tron, yes. and then there was a there was a cut down, um, and obviously within the collector community, back when these things weren't so precious, people chopped down EDOTs to make their own cut down versions. But originally, I believe there was a, an OEM cut down discs of Tron. Is that right? Or am I right? Yes, that's correct. There was the, what we call the stand up and then there was the environmental. And to my eternal shame, I stumbled onto an environmental. Um, that was one of my first games. So they weren't letting me take any of them home yet. And I, but I found one, I got it home, couldn't get it into my basement without cutting it in half and then re and then reassembling it. Oh, Brian, then reassembling it. Not but you. to my shame, I sold it 15 <laughs> years ago, and that I'm still kicking myself for that one. Yeah, they are. They are not easy to find. Yeah, that's for sure. But they're beautiful. Um, Brian, you also went on to work on Spy Hunter. Spy Hunter, like I mentioned earlier, Spy. Uh, the animators got to work on everything. Um, mm. In Discs of Tron, I was pretty much the only animator by the time I was assigned to it. Some people had done stuff that were no longer there before I was hired. But on a game like Spy Hunter, um, that programmer he was not in the main hallway he was kind of in a back room and management left him alone because that game was in development probably longer than most of the games I worked on in those days and I was working on that or with other animators um, while working on other games but so my contributions were more uh, going back playing it saying hey why don't we do this and well can you give me some of that and it's like yeah I can give you that Sharon if you do the helicopter I'll do the missiles you know oh Hey, Steve, you know, why don't we, we've got, Tom, we've got all these levels where you're just driving, but if I change 10 background blocks, we can turn this into a water race and change the main car into a boat. And then another animator would come in and say, okay, I'm going to do the boat animations. So my contributions on Spy Hunter were more to, like I say, very peer-to-peer, as many design contributions as art contributions on that. I was not a lead in any way in terms of the art on that, but I was one of many contributors that made that game what it was. And the fact that it had such a great feel, uh, I mean, there is no better feeling in the world than when you finally get in that truck and get your weapons and you've got that uh, Peter Gunn theme playing and yes. you just feel yes. like you're going to live forever two seconds before you crash. Yeah, so, it was that great feeling for just those two seconds anyway. It's hard as nails. But yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, obviously the, you know, suggesting that, you know, you can the car can drive into the water and become a boat that of course has its um that's a gameplay decision as much as it is a uh in air quotes design decision as well isn't it so right right uh things had to be modified and again a whole Mm. a whole group of decisions come out of one moment where we're going aha because then it's like oh Mm. well oil on water but let's make it flame or uh you know barrels are now some things just floating in the river. So a lot of it is driven by, hey, we can quickly get this to you, Tom, if because he's looking at his deadline when they've told him they've got to get him out. Yeah. So it was, yeah, again, peer to peer, very cooperative, very much, hey, we're making this up as we go along. And as long as everybody on the team is got the game in mind, uh, that's when things work out. So, Brian. You know, when you're working on something like Spy Hunter, can I mean, can you tell? I mean, even when it's in development, when you when it's just a kernel of an idea, or indeed it's moved along a little bit, do you just know it's going to be a success in the arcade, or at, le- at the very least, you know it's a great game? I, you know, I think so. 
I think so. I mean, I, I've, and we mentioned Patui Louie. I think we all turn a blind eye to something from time to time. And those are the mistakes you learn to because I'm having fun and this should be fun and it's going to be fun. And you learn from that. But I think everyone, especially, you know, when you've got a good team and you're working on multiple games at once, there are the games that more people are coming up to and playing than others. Yeah. Um, and, that if nothing else, and that's not always a, a, a slam dunk either. I mean, we had we did a one screen golf game in which two players could take turns if they wanted to. It had had two track balls around to do the finish the nine holes, and we learned early on that players would just compete to see if they could finish it quicker right. than the other players. So both players are slamming that track ball and taking their stuff and turned in this. And that was the most popular game on the floor for the nine months we developed it. And it did nothing out on test. Hmm. It just never earned enough. It, it didn't have any flash, but it had a tremendous amount of gameplay. Um, so that's it, not a guarantee if everybody plays it, but... You do have a feel for the ones that hit big, like a Spy Hunter, like a Dissatron, like Rampage. When everybody's visiting, everybody's making suggestions. And for me, when everybody's laughing, you know you're on the right track. Well, yeah, indeed. And indeed, I'm going to throw you over to Paul in a few moments um, to talk about Rampage. But before we do, if I can just ask, you were actually involved um, with the sequel to Spy Hunter several years later, I believe in 87, <laughs> I think, which Paul Paul assures me was far from a success. So oh, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know much about that game, but tell me, tell us what went wrong. Uh, no, actually, that was another case where like with Patui Louie, um, I wanted to fake scaling. Because I had faked successfully fake scrolling and other things, and I'd successfully right. faked this. In this case, though, it wasn't me driving it, no pun intended. Uh, this was the programmer um, had approached me about, can we fake what Sega was doing without Run? I, using our color palettes. Oh, the sprite scaling. Sure, uh, yeah. Can we use our color palettes to make this forward motion? And I'm like, yes, we could we can get the forward motion but i'm not sure our background system we're gonna have to replace the whole screen to make these tracks curve i'm not sure we can get this to work so he, he said okay let's do a, a stick shift game and it was called max rpm and it was actually quite popular with a small group and from that the lead programmer on spy hunter had just become our first team manager prior to this time we never had a manager for the department and he wanted us to do a Spy Hunter 2. The programmer that was assigned to it wanted to do it f that first-person look. Um, several of us were involved in the original design team, and several walked out of it. I, want, I had just seen Mad Max. I had just seen uh, uh, Road Warrior. So thematically, I thought we could do something fun with that kind of, I'm not a vehicle guy, I'm a person guy. So we had three different people wanting to make three different games and going into that, I don't think any of us thought it was ever going to work, but we gave it our best shot. And I, some people have said some nice things about it, but yeah, that's one of the ones that I, I wish no one would ever have brought up. So, well, that, 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 the creation of that sounds like the diametric <laughs> opposite of, uh, well, we can speak to that. It sounds, it sounds yeah. like the opposite, but no, it does, it does speak to learning from your mistakes, which every d developer, every designer knows that's the best way to make sure you don't make the same mistake twice. 
Brian, we, we're probably going to come now to your most well-known game, which, of course, Rampage. Um, we presume you spent much of your childhood watching black and white monster movies then. Um, as a little kid, I was terrified. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock presents it. I'd hear the theme music. I'd run to bed or Twilight Zone. As a teenager, I fell in love with black and white monster movies of all kinds, uh, particularly the Ray Harryhausen, though, more than the the uh, Godzilla kaiju stuff. I liked um, even before I knew I would make films or like animation process, I love that look of Mighty Joe Young and King Kong and, you know, 20 million miles to Earth. And so, yes, you're right in that assumption. I'm interested with Rampage because it seems that the limitations of the hardware actually affected the game design in that if you wanted to display something big, it basically had to be a rectangle. And you went, that can be a skyscraper. I just want to know, is that the best way to start with a game design, planning around what the hardware can do? Or should you actually think big and try and create the hardware to meet your vision? Uh, that's, uh, that's an excellent question. Um, and I don't think there's a correct answer. It's not an either or. I am a person who I don't make promises I can't keep. And I know I can only make promises about what I can control. As I learned what the hardware could and couldn't do, I would entreat the hardware guys to do more with it. They're confined by their bosses they can't do. Rampage evolved from, came out of the hardware limitation, them saying you can't animate backgrounds because I saw hmm. at trade shows other games that maybe couldn't do what we could do with the foreground sprites, but they're background animated. You can't do that. We can't scroll. We can't scale. We can't, hmm. you can, you can move a rectangle, Brian, what are you going to do with a moving rectangle? <laughs> Literally, that was what I was told in this meeting after a trade show. And I turned to Sharon and I said, okay, a building collapsing upon itself. That's a moving rectangle. And what ducked down buildings? Big characters. So I can, yeah. I had done a game previously where I'd started combining sprites to make bigger characters and big characters. So now I can do this. And we, I mean, within that first five minutes, everybody in the room knew we had a hit. We knew we had next year's number one game. I went and grabbed a sound guy and a programmer and pulled him in. And, and we, we came out of that just ecstatic because we knew from that moment, we were going to have something that no one had ever seen before. So the gameplay, the gameplay came out of me saying, I know I can do this. Well, not even me do it. I know what I know about the background. I know the programmer can do this. So we can make this game. Now, thematically, it's, you know, that going back to the sandbag box and making uh, sandcastles. And then what else do you do with them except stomp on them, you know? <laughs> um, so that goes back to the childhood, but it wasn't that direction. It wasn't, I want to make a game where I'm destroying big buildings. It was like, okay, what can we do with this feature? Wow, we can do this. When And that's when two things came together. And again, bigger than the sum of its parts. I, I love the fact that you said the whole team was really enthusiastic about this concept, but it was very original and also included you playing the bad guy, which is not the norm back then in the arcades. Was it a difficult sell to management to greenlight the project? Well, we, we left that room and went to our new manager, um, and um, he said, no, Oh, <laughs> he said, no, I, I've got 
a different project I want Jeff to work on. And, I, and you know, we've got these other things going on. There's no way we can do this. I went over his head to one of the vice presidents of engineering that I was in good speaking terms with and said, can we do this? And he liked it, but he's like, no, you can't be the bad guy. You can't eat people. No, 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 no. Um, and Jeff and I, Jeff Nauman, a uh, programmer that I'd done games like Sarge and Demo Derby with, um, he and I proved out the concept. I created the art. I started working on the characters. He started making sure we could do it, even though we hadn't been assigned yet. And again, like I say, in those days, we were allowed that amount of freedom. And just by coincidence, the three top people at Valley Midway were let go. And they put in a guy with a retail, uh, here in the States, there was a retail store, a mid-level retail store that he came from. And his first day there, he said, I've got an open door policy. Hmm. And I was waiting outside his door at 8.59 the next morning. Uh, and I pitched him the game and he greenlighted it. And the rest, as they say, is history. It broke every earnings record. It did everything we knew it was going to do. And yeah, it was a bit of a fight, but it wasn't like a bloody battle. It was it was just like luck and coincidence. Let Rampage become Rampage. Yeah, which it certainly did. One of the things with Rampage is that you do get to choose your characters you know you don't just give the player one you get them to choose three that idea of choice was that something important to you for a player somehow that they perhaps identify with a certain one of the monsters more than another yeah, well yeah there were several things going into the that design element was um we decided early on that by simply changing the color palette, I could use all of George's body just by putting a different head on him and we could add a third character. So you talk to the cabinet guys and say, can we squeeze in one more set of controls and then we can get one more player on here? Because Jeff and I, we both lean towards player-to-player uh, -player games. It's more fun when you're looking at the guy next to you or the guy next to you is screaming, whether they're competition or cooperative. And with Rampage, it was very important for me to be both. I wanted the I wanted there to be no rules. I didn't grow up with video games. I was not particularly coordinated. Uh, skill great games were great. Love Spy Hunter. Love Dissatron. Never got more than level four or five. Or if I did, I was beside myself, and I sure couldn't afford to play them. I was glad I could play them for free. So I with Rampage. From the start, I wanted it to be people playing any way. There were no wrong way to play it. Um, it was a little complex. You know, we kind of had to talk people through the idea of climbing the buildings and knocking them down. But we gave them enough. Um, we let it be a, you know, enough little shot by these little tiny bullets that aren't going to do anything to a big, big character. So that gave the player enough time to learn. And hopefully in that learning, he's getting surprised and he's learning about what eating a good thing means or a bad thing means. There was so much in that game that was innovative and it all came out of daily back and forth between Jeff and I and the other people that, you know, on the floor is, oh, wow. They're doing this. Well, couldn't they do this? Well, they could. What if he drowns? Okay, let's make the bridge. He jumps on the bridge, it collapses. You know, what what if he grabs this particular character and she's a pretty girl, so no one no one in the National Guard will shoot at you if you're holding her. 
all those little story elements come over a, you know, eight month, nine month development period. And the fact that we talk about them in the morning, I can create the character in the afternoon and see it in the game the next morning or that's later that same day. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. And I'm going to stop repeating that over and over again because nobody wants to hear that. It was a good time and we had a good time playing it. There's so many little touches, almost comic touches. Like if you're, if you're George and you're holding the woman, she can sometimes slap you in the face. Right, or when the, right. Or when the monster shrinks to human size and sort of scurries off nakedly. <laughs> and that was, that was an earnings concern. Really? Um, not a concern, but I never wanted anybody to die in any of my video games. Uh, I just that's just me nobody dies um you know players say die when they they use up their quarter but so that was important to me to shrink, shrink them down to the little naked people and jeff came up with the idea of while they're walking off the screen let somebody else eat them <laughs> and then without really realizing anything at the time once we went out on test we realized that that one little feature cause people to dig frantically into their pockets for their next quarter, not only because it, by buying in before you got off the screen, you could keep your score, but because you desperately didn't want that idiot next to you eating you because he was just <laughs> going to get in your face and laugh. And that became, you know, that became an earnings magnet for the game. The continuous buy-in was new and we were told it wouldn't work. Um, we only did 768 levels in Rampage because we thought no one would ever get to the end. And boy, did we get grief for not having a big ending because they got through the, a full day of play at the arcade. They would eventually just keep buying till they got to the end. And we didn't do anything. We didn't, we didn't have enough art to do anything at the end. I think they turned to you and they growled. That was about it. Um, I think you must particularly um, identify with George, the King Kong character, because I think on the start screen, when you see them in human form, um, that's you, isn't it? That is me. That is. And uh, Ralph is Jeff Nauman. And Lizzie is my wife, Ray. Yeah. How did she feel being turned into um, a lizard? Was she OK with that? She, she's been great. I've actually kind of snuck her into a few games over the years, and she's been, she's been pretty good about it. You mentioned Jeff there. So... You formed a really lasting partnership with Jeff. You are still making games with Jeff now. And now, was it a case of opposites attracting with you and Jeff? Very much so. Um, I'm a camping, uh, book reading, film watching, creative. Jeff was a math, statistics, um, programmer, very creative and one of the best designers I've ever worked with because um, he was the exception to the what a lot of the programmers I've worked with, uh, the best are also designers, but he had the creative ability and he had a work ethic and a passion that matched mine. We both never wanted to do things twice. So we planned things out together and he put it very well once. If one of us had a problem with something, there's something wrong. When, when the two of us, you know, and, and it's not necessarily what this guy's complaining about or what the other guy's bringing up, but when the two of you get to that point where you agree, you know, you've really got something you've really come. And to me, I, I tell people all the time, game design is a, is a combative almost can be combative in terms of when both people really care about the end product, you're willing to take the time to work out what is not quite right until you're both going, yeah, that's it. That's what we've got. 
<laughs> and it's it's a wonderful feeling. It, it makes, well, that and the paycheck makes everything worth the while. Beautifully put. Uh, I'm going to hand on to Tony to talk uh, perhaps about some of your less well-known games. Uh, Brian, uh, I wonder if we can pull out a couple of deep cuts. Okay. Uh, one of which would be one of your uh, less well-known games, Zwackery, which obviously looks great for its time and uh, and is full of really interesting ideas. But it strikes me as being a, ra- a rather sort of complicated game and, and perhaps ultimately was rather too complicated to uh, be a success in the arcades. I, you know, I, in hindsight, I think I might, I might agree with you. It was, um... Here in my arcade in the home, it was one of the most popular with all the neighborhood kids, um, but it never really got the chance to find out if the general public would love it because of a fluke that happened in the last month of development. The game was, uh, we we developed the game over a standard development period, and during the last month, uh, the head of engineering came to me and said, hey, good news. Uh, I upgraded this hardware in a special way that he was doing for some engineering product. And I have, you now have the ability to double the background resolution, which that would have looked incredible. But we were in the ninth month of a nine month development. It's like, it's going on test in three weeks, four weeks here. So all I did, I think, is I I made the character set high resolution and didn't really take advantage of it. And the part that they didn't tell us was that he was doing that because he had 176 of these experimental boards that he were for something else and didn't work. So Zwackery was released on a more expensive board and there were 176 of them and there were only 176 Zwackeries released. So um, it, it didn't, it may not have sold, not sold because it was too complex. And I don't think it was. It was, it was very complex in the way that uh, later games that I did or games like uh, rail games, uh, different paths that go to different places and you can't quite memorize. And it was very much a Dungeons and Dragons inspired game where you could collect spells in one place and use them somewhere else and you had to figure Mm. it out. So it had a level of complexity that appealed to the Zork players, if I can go back to the video games of my childhood, or not a childhood, but college days. Mm -hmm. Um, But I like to say, I don't even think it got a fair shake because only 176 were released. Oh, right. Okay. And it, it's interesting. We, we notice a certain pattern in, in some of your games. They all seem to share very odd, sort of untraditional uh, control setups and unique looking cabinets. Was this a conscious policy of Midway at the time? I, I had very little control over it. Arch, uh, Rampage, Arch Rivals, uh, Xenophobe, things like that. By the time, you know, I'd earned my chops, I had more control over what the controls were going to be based on what the team wanted to do in terms of gameplay. Those early games, uh, Zwackery, for example, used a Discs of Tron setup because we had a Discs of Tron sitting around. So now in addition to that, you've got the up and down knob that spins and that's your sword and your spell casting and your pickup. And then you've got your joystick, which is uh, moving left and right and jumping up in the air and uh so a lot of games those early games and but that wasn't even just because it's what we had laying around there was from the moment i was brought on board a big anti-home game feeling at bally midway uh 
Um, we're a manufacturer. We don't want to design games that can be emulated for the home. Now, um, slowly they came to understand that, you know, you could almost treat the arcade as a lost leader because they were going to make more money on the home ports, but very slowly. And that didn't really happen until the late 80s that they kind of came to that re realization. So they went out of their way to make things that you couldn't do on a on a Genesis D-pad or, a, you know, a home Atari joystick. That's really interesting. And I, that kind of flies in the face of the Sensei business model, does it not? The Sensei business model was all about efficiencies and getting the most out of one piece of hardware. Right. It's, it's kind of interesting that they hung on to that almost antiquated view of um, the business model they wanted to operate. Well, those three are the three that left uh, during Rampage. Oh, right. Okay. Or asked to leave. Uh, and yeah, and then we teamed up with Bally Sente for a while. And um, that actually turned out to be an incredibly wonderful break for me because they wanted us the whole move the whole development team to California. And I said, no, thank you. Mm. I like California, but I didn't want to live there. I had a nice... I've got a nice half acre out here and it's forested and it's wooded. And, and uh, at the last minute, they let me stay here in Chicago and move the rest of the team out there and then closed them down a year later. Oh, right. Um, so so Interesting. I actually built an office at the back of my half acre that uh, still stands out there to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, it was fun being able to be at home when my two-year-old and four-year-old were running around in the yard. Sure. It was uh, it was a nice nice added bonus to getting to do what I do for a living. And the podcast, Brian, we, we kind of have our favourite subjects, and one of them is laserdisc games. So we were absolutely delighted to hear that you were actually involved with developing one. So can you tell us a little bit about the idea behind the Spectre Files? The Spectre Files. Um, it was. Again, coming from a filmmaking background and again, wanting to, I think I mentioned, I, you know, more things I can control, the things I'm, I, the more I'm comfortable with making promises. Uh, one of the programmers taught me assembler and showed and gave me enough knowledge to, on my first home computer, which was a K-Pro. Anybody remember a K-Pro? Nope. <laughs> I was able to write an interactive text adventure that, oh, wow, this is great. And then that was, but it also was enough for me to go, I'm never going to be a programmer. I'm done with this. So the Spectre Files, um, LaserDiscs had come along. Bally had reduced uh, a couple Astron Belt, and I couldn't even tell you the others. And all they basically did was they had video sprite images over continuous loops of like filmed in cardboard canyons uh, flying by. Right. And uh, one of the other animators uh, at that time, Steve Olstead, um, and I looked at each other and we had, Steve was a friend of mine that uh, I brought him in shortly after I got into Bally. And hmm. we looked at each other and said, you know, we'd, we'd done films in high school. And I looked at him and said, let's do my Spectre Files, my interactive Laserdisc game. We went out, grabbed Sharon from another animator, uh, put her in a slinky dress and vampire teeth and <laughs> shot a 15-minute black and white demo that we showed to head of engineering. And I said, give me a budget of blank and I can make this into an hour-long interactive film. And much to my amazement, he said, yes. <laughs> And I had enough, I only budgeted enough for the film stock and development. 
um, and a rental of a Steenbeck flatbed editor. Okay. So I grabbed filmmakers from my school alma mater who came up and got class credit for spending months with me. I went to the Chicago, I, I literally put an ad in all the Chicago newspapers that said, vampires wanted, no experience necessary, <laughs> and got a tremendous response. Nice. So I had a bunch of unpaid actors, unpaid uh, <laughs> photogs um, who came up, we got together, and then we, I rent, I had enough money to rent an, an abandoned mental, 13-story abandoned mental institution that had electricity, <laughs> but no heat in the coldest February on record. And that's where we shot most of it. And and at the same time, I'm still doing my day job at, at Bally Midway. Um, it was a tremendously fun and crazy and an insane experience. Um, we It took us about a month and a half to film the most, most of it. We uh, got it edited in about eight months. And unfortunately, the story there stops. Uh, uh, this was mid '80s, and the story there stops because um, the I had in mind that it would be a Bally Midway project, and mm. they said no, we don't want it because we're out of the laser disc industry. They had released NFL football yeah. on a video disc rather than a laser disc, and when you bump a video disc game in an arcade, it turns into a four thousand dollar doorstop. So they got out of the industry, so there was nowhere to take my my uh, Spectre Files fully edited hour plus movie. Yeah, so I, I say you've got all this this footage. It must have been incredibly disappointing. By the way, filming in an abandoned mental hospital that's like the set of so many video games since there. <laughs> you were you were ahead of the curve there. But finally, then, is that we can now play the Spectre Files. How's that come about? That's a that's a wonderful arcade-related uh, tidbit in and of itself. I was talking with uh, Doc Mack, who runs the Galloping Ghost uh, here near in Chicagoland, uh, one of the world's, if not the world's largest arcade. And he is all about preservation as much as anything. And we were talking about many of my lesser known projects. And I mentioned Spectre Files and that I still had the footage laying around in somewhere in a box in my basement. And he said, well, why don't we restore it? And I said, well, you know, um, the game was never done. <laughs> I said, the footage is done. And he said, well, couldn't your company, Game Refuge, create the game? And I, so from there, he hired us to create the games, the Spectre Files, Deathstalker. And uh, I'm so delighted that he did because it, I mean, 30 years in the making, if you want to look at it that way, once he, and once he brought it into his arcade, the first and only arcade uh, game that his productions company had released at that point, uh, it became the instant favorite of the arcade. And that was a few years back and people would come from all over the country to play it. Um, and then just recently, uh, I think a week ago, uh, he released it on Steam. Oh, so we can play it. He, he, he did sell a number of arcade games, uh, production units for the arcade, but it's now on Steam and it is, it is, uh, a wonderful, horrible movie <laughs> in the mystery <laughs> science theater tradition. Um, you're the star of this awful film. You have to find the missing girl, Buffy McGuffin. There's a Hitchcock nod. Right. Um, nice. 
<laughs> and you go to this haunted house, uh, the Dertachet Institute of Abnormal Psychology or something like that. And okay. it gets crazy after there. Um, it's fun. I'm delighted. 30 years wait, but finally we get to play it. Yeah. Uh, Brian, so towards the end of the 80s, you worked on um, a game called Arch Rivals, which was obviously a fun take on basketball. Um, but a few years later, Midway had a huge hit with NBA Jam. At the time, did you not think, hey, that was my idea? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The gameplay um, and credit where credit is due. Uh, the comic element of Arch Rivals is all me, but the gameplay aspect uh was uh, my partner programmer Jeff Nauman was on a cross-country flight and he realized that one of the things that I always liked doing was letting wanted to do was let players control multiple characters we did a little of that in Sarge and I did that with some other games that uh, didn't make it big but he's like I can now do real basketball strategies if we let the player go you know control two characters on a team i can you know do a pick and roll i can do a, you know and i'm like jeff you're the sports guy you're the guy who you know knows this this is going over my head but i said as long as i can follow people maybe we got something here because i want to do something for all the people that aren't sports people so that gameplay was unique prior to then you had to do some silly video gamey thing to try and get something in the basket this game assumed that everybody that was out there on the court was good at what they did and whether or not the ball went in depended on how the player passed between himself and his his uh, teammate and when he chose to shoot and where he chose to shoot from and where the other player blocked and or punched you in the face or tackled you uh, so that gameplay was, I got to make sure I give Jeff Nauman credit for that. That's still very much a Jeff and Brian game. But in that case, a lot of the games were usually my concepts, but this is one that was very much Jeff because he was the sports guy. And then years later, uh, after Williams bought us, uh, Williams, our biggest competitor, um, bought Bally Midway. And for whatever reason, we were about halfway through our trivals at the time. So of all the video designers at Bally Midway, Jeff and I were the only two they kept. And I was told later by Williams executives that the sales of Arch Rivals single-handedly paid for the buyout of Bally Midway, wow. which I've always thought of that as just an anecdote, but I found out recently now that that was actually true. And of course, um, around a similar time frame, you uh, left Midway. Um, I just wondered what, what prompted you to leave? Well, we, we finished Arch Rivals uh, for the new Midway Bally, Bally Midway Williams, and uh, we wanted to do our next game, which we wanted to be an Arch Rivals football. But Williams had a football game in the works, so we did, well, let's do rugby and let's give them battle axes and torches and swords and uh, you know let them decapitate people and set them on fire. And that was pigskin. Mm -hmm. And then after pigskin... Um, I began getting wooed by a producer from Electronic Arts and for about a year. And back in those days, I did, again, I still didn't want to move to California. Uh, they didn't want to let me work remotely. That was kind of unheard of. So finally, uh, they said, you know, what if you, we gave you the money to start your own company? And 
I went to Jeff and we talked about it and said, sure, why not? So we left Midway under good terms and we uh, took off and went to EA and pitched them. They did this without even knowing the first game we were going to do. We pitched them a game in which the player controlled a squad of little characters, not dissimilar to Pigskin. But it was uh, kind of in a mock World War II setting, and uh, they bought it. They loved it. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a brief moment of tension there in that initial meeting when they said, we want to do, why don't we do street games? Isn't that more relevant? And I was very adamant. It's like, no, that's a deal breaker. We'll walk out of here. Jeff's looking at me like I'm crazy. (laughs) But it's like, no, we both got kids, and we want to play a game. If this is a war game... We don't want it to have anything that anybody, I mean, we want it to be obviously from a different time so the comedy doesn't hit too close to home. We don't want our kids playing street games. We want them to play this silly war game. And that became General Chaos, and it was EA's number one non-licensed Sega game that year. And I think it was the only reason the four-player control adapter was even invented, or I was told that anyway, so... Wow. General Chaos was a huge hit for us. And that's when we formed Game Refuge. And that was in 1992. So 10 years after I entered the industry in 82, in 92, we formed Game Refuge. And then we've been doing games as Game Refuge ever since. Looking back, what's your what's your view of what's left of the coin-op games industry now? I'm really not the right person to ask. Um, as you may have guessed from some of my earlier comments, I don't follow video games. If there's a game I enjoy, I play it that someone turns me on to. Usually an employee will turn me on to something. Hmm. I don't think of myself as a businessman, even though I've had a company for 38 years. I think of my, you know, I can read a contract, but in terms of planning, I don't predict. I don't, I'm not the guy to evaluate where the industry is because I don't know where it is because that's not fun for me. What's fun for me is working on the project I'm on and thinking about what I'm working on next. I am delighted that people are making new arcade games. And um, I'm delighted that arcades have had a bit of a resurgence here in the U.S., certainly in the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, as an industry, they're going to have to understand what those early Midway guys didn't understand is that it can't be the same as it was. You're going to have to let people do things they expect to be able to do from home now. There's, there's no reason an arcade game shouldn't let you play, especially if it's a multiplayer one like I like to create. I should be able to play with somebody at home um, who just happens to be looking for someone to play with. Mm-hmm. If there's not somebody standing next to me in the arcade, someone from home could be my. It's, it's better than AI when you know that the person screaming is another human being. Mm. But I guess that's what's changed, right, Brian? So, you know, back in the day, the actual game was simply a means to an end. It was there to sell lumps of wood and wiring and electronics, right? Yeah, partially. Um, I mean, the operator wanted new content on a regular basis that kids were going to drop a quarter in. He wanted them off the game in 90 seconds. Mm. We had to make him happy by getting the kids off the game, but then we had to make the kids happy enough that they'd want to put in another quarter. And it was a very unique discipline to learn. But even if those exact things don't apply anymore or apply so directly, it does represent a way of thinking about games where... 
Your customer isn't just the guy. I think too many games of the past 20 years, 30 years have been all about just selling it. They don't care what the player does after he buys it. They want it to be featured and marketed and it gets out the door and it gets sold. And if it ends up just something sitting on someone's shelf, they don't care. Whereas an arcade game designed into the game was the you got to make this guy want to play this again and again and again and again and then buy the port or the spin-off or the you know start playing the sequel because there you've built this element into it that's addictive where i think a lot of these wonderful multi-million dollar games they lose that they forget that i mean the best ones yeah. know it but there's a lot that all they want to do is get something on the shelf and sell it and they don't care what players do thereafter I just want to bring us on to Brian. Your 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 arcade pass caught up with you when in 2018 Rampage was turned into a movie. <laughs> so, when, I mean, when when did you first hear that? You know, an 80s coin op you'd had a hand in, more than a hand in, might become a movie. I I first heard about it in like 2014 in the trades, and I I think I penned a couple letters to Time Warner. Uh, one of which was, you know, a polite bug off and the other couple weren't even answered. <laughs> and I'd heard that, uh, you know, it was supposed to come out, I think, in, you know, 2015. And then around 2015, I hadn't heard anything. And then I saw in the trades that the rock had attached. So I was delighted for that because uh, I was disappointed I hadn't heard of any progress. And once the rock attached, I figured it would get it would get done. Um, I didn't, I wasn't involved in the development at all. Uh, well, the script development and the initial stuff I wasn't involved in. Yeah. One of the people from the casting company here in Chicago, cause they filmed in Chicago, knew of me and invited me to come out. Would I want to be an extra? I said, of course, I'd love to. Sure, sure, sure. And it was, you know, I thought it could never get any better than this. I was out there with a bunch of hardworking people running in 89 degree, 90 degree heat from imaginary monsters. It was a ton of fun. And then the second weekend I did it, they introduced me to the um, first assistant director and the second unit director who said, really, you're the guy who came up with Rampage? And then so would you mind would you mind doing a cameo right it's like well doesn't get any better than this and i spent that entire afternoon running behind a you know a a car with a camera on it you know close up on my face you know screaming bloody murder and it, it was a riot and then about a month later i got a call from one of the producers who said you know i've been wanting to call you for a long time and now that you're actually working on the film officially. They can't stop me. So you want to come down and visit the studio and meet everybody? Wow, okay. And I said, absolutely. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, they, the producer uh, took me through the entire studio. You know, this area is working on this while this area is working on this. The stunt doubles in the plane and uh, mm. over here, the rock and Naomi are doing the ending scenes with a big imaginary George. And much mm. to my surprise, who figured, OK, oh, this is all CGI. Mm. The character who played George, actor Jason Lyles, is in a crane 40 feet above the other actors sign languaging to the rock 
I mean, the fact that they went to that level of detail was amazing. But the, my dimples were on the top of my head. I was grinning like an idiot the whole time. So did you did you did you get to meet uh, Dwayne Johnson and Naomi Harris? Well, I I kept a low profile most of the day. I, I tried to sure, okay. hang back and you know peek from behind tents. And at the end, towards the end of the afternoon, I was taking pictures with the producers while nearby. Uh, the Rock and Naomi were shooting a scene and all of a sudden I hear, stop, I got to be part of this. And he, they came running down off the set to get in on the pictures. I was completely geeking out, as you can imagine. Uh, he was incredibly nice. He was, you know, ladling on wonderful I don't even know what he was saying, but he was showering me with laud and praise. And I guess he was a, I didn't realize at the time, but he was a big fan of Rampage as a kid. Oh, fantastic. That's how cool so is that? So <laughs> it, it was just, it was magical. It really was magical. I mean, if asked, you know, the most important times in my life were my marriage and the birth of my two children. But you guys know what it really is. <laughs> <laughs> meeting DJ as, uh, as Biden and Harris refer to him as. Yeah. You do realize the rock, the rock will be telling his family. Oh, I met the guy <laughs> that made rampage. Um, I'm not sure I'd go that far with you, but it's nice to think that, right? Brian, thank you so much for coming on. It's been, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. It really has listening, listening to your anecdotes and, um, thank you guys for asking me to be part of this. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. And I, I really hope that one day, I'll be able to play the Spectre Files in Galloping Ghosts with you. That's a date. Just let me know when you're in my neck of the woods. Uh, Brian, thank you. Thanks for sharing your stories. I have a confession, actually, which I'm prepared to make in public, not only in front of all our listeners and also uh, Richard and Paul, but also you, Brian. I have never played Rampage. Oh, dear. <laughs> I, I'm, so, I'm sorry. But... Um, I am now inspired and I will give you a commitment that the next time I come across a Rampage machine, I will stick a quarter in and uh, think of you. Well, for, to get the full experience, you've got to play with two other people that you don't know. Okay. And that's that's when it all comes together because you bond with them. And I mean, one of the nice things about Rampage was the, that older brothers would pay with younger sisters and you're playing with a stranger. And from friend to foe in a matter of moments yeah. a straight punch yeah. that lands in the wrong face you know it just it's unexpected and uh and bring more than one quarter because it is 768 levels as i think i mentioned <laughs> and you'll want to go all the way through the challenge accepted i will right. report back in a future episode thank you brian it's it's been really enlightening thank you thank you Tony. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank you.